Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. December of 1952, almost a perfect storm of conditions hit London to create the deadliest environmental episode in recorded history. Here's what happened. For weeks leading up to this, London had gone through one of these cold snaps. We know what that's like living here, don't we? The people of London at that time were heating with a very low-grade coal, high in sulfur. And when the smoke would come out of the chimneys in London, it mixed with the natural fog that they have there. And so then the air turned even colder, blocking out more sunlight. So they put more coal on their fires, making more smoke. And the fog and the cold air from the high pressure trapped the smoke down by the city, and it stayed there for five days. And when it started on a Friday, because people were so used to the fog, at first they didn't think anything about it. But soon... It became so dark, by that Sunday, visibility had gone down to less than one foot. Roads became abandoned with cars, concerts that were scheduled for the middle of the day, the middle of the afternoon, they were just canceled. Because even in the daytime, the people were living in total darkness. In less than one day, London had been effectively shut down. Cattle had to be killed and thrown away. They couldn't be used for meat because their insides were black. Even the ambulances wouldn't go out. If you needed to go to the hospital, you were on your own. Now, this was the danger because a lot of people would need their help. No one knew how deadly this would become. At first, birds started getting lost in the smoke, and they started crashing and flying into buildings. Breathing became like inhaling acid rain. And then they started running out of coffins. And at first, the death count was put at 4,000 people, but then it climbed. It kept going up and up and up. And eventually, it settled at about 12,000 souls that lost their life, with hundreds of thousands more sick from the great smog of 1952. Now, as I look at this killer smog of London, I think it is a perfect metaphor for the spiritual world that Jesus Christ stepped into. Jesus stepped into a dark world covered with sin and death. When God the Son chose to come live among us, So we need to think when it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that the holy, sinless, perfect creator looked at the world like we would look at London, covered in a thick, black, dirty smoke. Because the world was covered in death, in sin. It had been polluted. The lost state of fallen man is a very ugly thing. His creation had rebelled against him. They had become cruel. They had become selfish, hateful, greedy. 
This is the world that God loves so much that he sent his son. Philippians 2, we start this morning with verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, the greatest example of humility this world has ever known is seen in Christ Jesus. We look at these verses because it is one of the most important texts in the New Testament about Christ, but never lose sight of the fact that this was first written to show us the humility of the Savior, that his love for us led him to be a selfless love for us. Paul is telling us, take up the mindset of Jesus Christ. Your attitude as a Christian should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul is literally saying here, keep thinking this. Keep on having that same attitude as Christ. But look at verse 6. Here's where you need to challenge your thinking about who Jesus Christ is. Being in the form of God, he says. This means that God the Son was God and is God. He existed as God long before he came into this world. This was his nature. This was his character long before he came as a child. He's always existed as God. This is who he is. And that is why the text tells us right here, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was always equal with the Father. Jesus was already the eternal God who has always, always, always existed. It was not taking anything away from God by Jesus claiming to be God because that is who he has always been. And it wasn't anything that he had to try for or something that he had to work to kind of hold and grab onto because he already had it. It's in his nature. It's who he is. He lost nothing. Make sure you understand this. He lost nothing. He had all the rights of deity, even as a man. Then look at verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. But here's where you need to be careful as a Christian in your understanding of what took place at the birth of Jesus Christ. God the Son, when he became a child, born to Mary, he did not lose any of his deity. He did not lose any of his deity. Make sure you understand that. Still God, because God cannot quit being God. Otherwise, if he could stop being God, then he wasn't much of a God in the first place, was he? But our Lord could and did take on the form of a very lowly servant when he entered human life at the incarnation. He never quit being God, but he did choose to limit himself. Jesus is the one who spoke the world into existence, and he is the one who will strike down his enemies with his spoken word. But he came as a lowly servant submitting to the authority, submitting to the plan of the Sovereign Father. The Eternal Son stepped into time to live in a human body. He's the one that had created time, but he stepped into time in a human body. When the average person walked down the street in those days and came face to face with him, they could not tell, they could not know that he was the very Son of God. 
Nothing made him stand out. Meaning this, there was no halo over his head, no matter what pictures you have of him like that. There was no halo over his head. No army of angels walking around, escorting him around. His face didn't shine or have some glow. He worked a job like anyone else. He paid his taxes and he walked from place to place. He chose to live then in a much harder time. His glory was hidden from men by what? By his flesh. He came as a servant. He could have been born into a rich man's home, but he wasn't. Instead, he lived in poverty. Jesus was not born into a royal home, into the home of Caesar, so that he could be respected. And even though Jesus has the right to rule the entire earth, he took on the role of a servant. He laid aside those rights. He came as one who had no rights of his own. Jesus still had power and authority, but he didn't use it. And this is why he said in Matthew chapter 26, 53, he said, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus never stopped being God. Understand the humility. Understand the greatness of our God. The creator took on the form of man. Jesus became a man. He embraced perfect humanity. Let this mind, meaning his example of humility, be in you, Christian. See, this strikes at the heart of everything that we do as believers. Because all of our spiritual growth in Christ starts where? With the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, verse 2. What does Paul say? He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, Christians that grow have a passion for the Word of God, both in the church and in their lives at home, because it starts here. It starts with your understanding of the Word of God, His will for your life. Then we can learn in the Bible, in the Word of God, how He wants us to live. We can learn His will for our lives. And then as we do that, we get His thinking. We literally get His mind in us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can live it out just as He wants us to do. See, those that learn to live out the Word are those that have learned to find His joy in their lives. Paul is telling us, you know, the world, everybody out there is constantly trying to get ahead. Everybody is. They want more. They want more power. They want more money. They want more success. And Christ, He came and He said, I'm willing to go with less. He became a man so He could serve. If anybody had the right to be self-centered. It was Jesus Christ. But instead, he came to live as a man for us, as a bondservant, the lowest social status. The creator, the sustainer, came to serve. He came to die for us. And putting this all back into context, Paul is saying, this is the price that Jesus Christ paid for the unity in the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than death. You see, unity in the church is seen when we learn to focus on the needs of others. And no one has ever done that like Jesus himself. Be thankful that we serve a God of humility and it is his humility living in us, through us, that needs to be the heartbeat of this church. See, the Savior didn't think of himself. He thought of others. Verse 8 in your text. 
It says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he talks about a king who took off his kingly robes, his robes that he would wear as a king to put on the clothes of a beggar just so he could go out and live among his people. Isn't that what Jesus did when he became a man, when he came to earth? He came demanding nothing. When God came to earth, it was in a shelter, in a shelter made for animals with nowhere to lay the newborn king, but in a feeding trough. There were probably more animals there than humans. A mule could have stepped on him. I mean, that could have happened. Jesus humbled himself. Paul tells us his external appearance was that of a man willing to die on a cross. He suffered a horrible death, a punishment saved for the worst criminals, a form of execution that was without equal in pain and humiliation. Jesus died like the scum of humanity. It reminds me of the story of Vitold Pilecki. Now this guy is a hero in my book. Vitold was a Polish army captain in World War II, and you should go read about him. He did the unthinkable, and he actually snuck into Auschwitz. That's pretty serious. Now, he knew in World War II that something was terribly wrong with that concentration camp, and he didn't feel that he could sit back and just watch. He wanted to get information to all that was going on in that camp. But he knew that the only way he could find out accurate information was going there, doing it himself, and going there and getting that accurate information. So those in charge approved his plan. He was given a false identity with a Jewish name. And so in September of 1940, Vitold allowed the Germans to arrest him during a routine roundup. And he was sent to Auschwitz and assigned inmate number 4859. Now Vitold this cost him something. He was a husband, and he was a father of two. And he would later say, I bid farewell to everything I had known on this earth. He became just like any other prisoner, despised, beaten, and threatened with death. Then beginning in 1941, prisoner 4859 started working on his dangerous mission. He organized the inmates inside the prison into a resistance movement and documented all the war crimes. Vitold used couriers to smuggle out detailed reports about all the atrocities. By 1942, I don't know how he did this, but he actually had helped to organize a secret radio station from inside the camp, from scrap parts. And the information that this man was able to provide gave the Allies the information about this horrible, horrible death camp. And in the spring of 1943, he finally came up with a plan to get out. Vitold joined the camp bakery where he was able to overpower a guard and escape. And once he was free, he finished his report estimating that around 2 million people had been killed at Auschwitz. But when the reports reached London, officials thought this man had to be exaggerating. There was no way. But today we know he was exactly right. You see, this army captain, what did he do? He became a criminal in the eyes of the Germans. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us when he snuck onto our planet. The king became a servant. But more than that, he became a criminal in the eyes of the world. 
Jesus suffered and died on a cross to rescue us from the prison camp of our sin. He took the shame. He took the humiliation of our sin so that we could be clothed with the glory of his righteousness. And all he asks is that we believe in him. All he asks is that we trust in him to save us from our sins. And our understanding this shapes how we relate to God. You know, Jesus didn't come to earth just to stomp you in the ground and make you feel bad. He came to earth so that he could reconcile you to himself in order that he could take you one day to heaven. He made himself low so that he could lift you up. And so follow his example in your life. Humble yourself like Jesus did. Embrace his attitude. Adopt his way of thinking. I think Jesus made it clear when he said in Mark 10, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. No one else has ever come from the heights of glory to such a shameful death. Prisoners in that day were nailed to a cross and left to die. Death might not come for several days, and it typically came from suffocation because the weight of the body made it more and more and more difficult to lift their bodies up and breathe. Jesus chose to lay aside his rights for you, so I ask you a question. Why is it that so many Christians are arrogant? Maybe it's because the mind of Christ is not in us. I was reading about one church that was planning a youth Sunday, and one of the members suggested that the teenagers would serve as ushers, lead in prayer, and bring in special music. But I love what one of the teens did. I love this. He stood up and said, we're tired of doing the little things. We'd like to do something difficult this year and maybe keep it going all year long. Listen to what they proposed. They said, we'd like to work with our trustees in remodeling the basement room so that it can be used for a classroom. And we'd like to start visiting our elderly members each week, taking them recordings of the service. And if it's okay, we'd like to have a weekly witness on Sunday afternoons in the park. Yeah, that's okay. That's exactly what we want. Because we need to expect more from our youth. But I don't think we can until we learn to expect more out of ourselves. Learn to be a servant of others. Humble yourself. Don't go looking for respect. Let it go and find the honor that comes from following the example of Christ. One pastor complained that the men in his church were changing the words of the hymn from take my life and let it be to take my wife and let me be. <laughs> Everyone always wants the other person to sacrifice. But here's what happens when we walk in humility, when we serve in love, when we sacrifice for others, we find his joy because it makes us more and more and more like Jesus Christ. The death of our Savior was not an accident. Jesus chose to lower himself, accepting death because he submitted to the plan of the Father, but God exalted him, which is what we read next, starting in verse 9, where it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Follow the pattern in this beautiful text. You cannot find a more beautiful passage in the Word of God. Verse 6, the eternal Son in divine glory. Verse 7, where does He go? He humbled Himself and became a man. Verse 8, He walked in humble obedience. Verse 8, He died on the cross. But now we see the exaltation of Christ from glory to the cross and back to glory again. Because here's what we need to remember this time of year. The story of Jesus does not end with Jesus in a manger scene. And it does not end with Jesus on the cross. And the story does not end with his dead body in a tomb. Our Savior is now glorified again, risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. Your name, Christian, carries with it some authority. When you sign a check, your name authorizes the payment of certain funds. But some names carry more authority than others. Take the president of our country right now. When he signs a bill out of Congress, it becomes the law. Your name or my name on that same bill wouldn't mean a thing. It wouldn't mean anything at all. But Jesus has been given a name that is above all other names. In other words, there is no one who has more authority and power than he. What does Ephesians 1 tell us? It says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. See, Paul tells us that Christ has been exalted. It refers to his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification after his humiliating death. When Jesus gave the great commission to the disciples after his resurrection, what did he tell them in Matthew 28? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus returned to the glory which was his as the creator of the universe. Psalm 110, a beautiful section in the Word of God. It gives us a prophetical description of the Father welcoming the Son back into His presence after His death and resurrection. And it says this, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Paul is teaching us about the lordship of Christ. And he's telling us in verse 10 that when Christ returns to this earth, every knee is going to bow. There is a day coming, praise God, there is a day coming when every person will recognize the sovereignty of Christ. And it's a reference to Isaiah 45, verse 23, where the Lord said this, and I want you to notice carefully. He said, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And so what does Paul do? Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23, and there was a reason understand what Paul did because in Isaiah 45 Isaiah was proclaiming the greatness of our God Isaiah was proclaiming that the God of the Hebrew people would not share his glory with another and that one day this God would receive the worship of every living being on earth and Paul he took this text from Isaiah and he applied those powerful powerful words to none other than the Lord Jesus telling us that the great and sovereign God of Isaiah 45 is who? Jesus Christ. 
But notice what Paul says. Every knee should bow. Those in heaven, angels and saints already with Christ, those on earth, people still alive on earth after the second coming of Christ. And those under the earth, who's that? Lost humanity in hell. Every knee should bow. Even those of his enemies, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isaiah 45 says that every knee shall bow. The day is coming when all the people of the world, of heaven and of hell, will know the absolute deity and sovereignty of Christ, that Jesus is Lord. And they will either confess by faith or at least know it with resentment and despair when they stand before their judge. And notice how Paul ends it. To the glory of God, the Father. There is coming a day, praise God, when every created being will submit to Christ. And so you can live your life filled with pride if you want to, but there is a far, far better way. And it is to walk in humility in Christ and to recognize the greatness of our God. Imagine a day, Christian, when every created being in all the universe will know that Jesus is Lord. Let me give you two stories to end our time this morning that capture the heart of this text. This is a church in Whittier, California, and someone from this church had gone to Malawi, Africa, and had seen the firsthand evidence, the desperate need for health care for children. And when the church heard about this, they decided to raise $160,000 to build a fully equipped pediatric clinic. Now, this wasn't a huge church. This was far beyond anything they'd ever done as a church. But they decided to raise the funds and take up the offering at their Christmas Eve service. Bill Ankerberg is the pastor there, and here's what he said happened. He said, quote, The mood was electric on Christmas Eve as people brought their gifts down to the front and put them in large baskets. People cried. Children ran up smiling. He said that people gave with the greatest joy they'd ever seen in this church. People found their joy giving back to God because it was costing them something. People had to sit in the lobby. People had to stand along the walls because people came and filled the place, not even just from this church, but people in the community had heard about the project and came because they wanted to take part. And Pastor Bill said that he'd asked everyone to write on these envelopes where the money had come from. He didn't want to know who was given what, just what were they sacrificing to raise this offering. Kids had sold their toys, saved their allowances, babysat, and sacrificed Christmas presents to be able to give to the children of Malawi. Adults had chosen to give up physical therapy for the month, Christmas presents, dinners with friends, sold their cars, donated their savings, given up their winter vacations. One couple said this, they donated money that would have been used for fertility drugs with the hope that even if they couldn't have a baby, maybe they could save the life of someone else's child. See, everyone dug down deep and made a personal sacrifice to achieve this goal. They needed 160000 but when everything had been collected and counted, this one church had raised over 525000 for the children of Malawi. Let me give you another story. Let me tell you about the Robinson family and their tradition every year at Christmas. This family of five with three kids under the age of 10 
they choose to celebrate the birth of Christ in a unique way. On Christmas morning, instead of focusing on all the presents under the tree, here's what they do. They make pancakes, they make up some coffee, and then they head downtown. And once they get there, they load the coffee and the food into the back of a red wagon. Then with the eager help of their three-year-old, they pull the wagon around the mostly empty streets in search of homeless people to offer a warm and filling breakfast on Christmas morning. Now, these kids and this family have grown up looking forward to this time when they can show a little bit of practical love to the people who otherwise would have been cold and without breakfast. And I want to say this. Can you think of a better way to start the day that is supposed to be about the celebration of the God who is love? A.W. Tozer once said that Christians... Christians have it wrong because he said that Christ came to help the poor, but at Christmas we give gifts to the people who really don't need them. Now, I I like lights. I do. And I like gifts. Do you hear me, guys? I like gifts. But I like it more when the focus isn't on what we can get at Christmas time because the focus is so much instead on how we can reflect the love of Jesus Christ. How great it would be as a church if our wish list this year wasn't only about stuff that we could get. Because instead, we heard one another talking about a list of ways that we could be a blessing to other people. You see, part of what makes our God so great is the humility that was shown when he came to live as a man. And when Christ is living his life through us, that same sacrificial love for others should, should be seen. And this is why Paul said in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to tell you this. Learn to be a servant, because putting on the mind of Christ means to live with humility. Jesus put our needs ahead of his own. He thought our salvation was more important than his need for comfort in heaven. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He became a servant. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, Christians, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Follow the path of our blessed Savior. Live a humble, simple life, taking up his sacrificial love, looking to the day when you see him in glory. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.